0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the, the pastors here at King's Church. I hope you enjoyed this snowy week as much as my kids did. Uh, I, I think they realized that snow is, is a lot of fun. Um, they felt like they had to be out there 24-7. So I don't know. Um, I'm thinking, you know, and I have been had talked about this, but I think need to take a trip up north a little further to like some harsher winter conditions, you know, maybe that will appease them a little bit better so they don't have to be out in the snow so much. But I do hope you enjoyed your week as much as we did. Today, we are continuing in a new series in the Gospel of John, which we kind of uh, leaped into last week with this kind of epic prologue of John, and we were reminded of the word that becomes flesh, and he makes his dwelling among us, being Jesus. And last week, we, ta- we saw the, the heartbeat of this gospel, that John is going to call us to believe in him, believe in Jesus, receive him, and so become children of God and receive grace upon grace from his fullness. Now today we jump into kind of scene one of the story of the gospel of John, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with his baptism. What we're going to be introduced today is another John. Not to be confused with the author John, who is writing this gospel the disciple John. We're going to be introduced to a new John, John the Baptist. And, And just a disclaimer again, no, that is not his denominational affiliation, okay? He is not the first Baptist who ever lived. That is a title given to him, and we'll see why in just a moment. Now, before we get there, I just want to pose a question to you. Have you ever been upstaged before life? Or perhaps someone has upstaged you or you've upstaged someone else. Maybe if you don't understand that term, it's a theater term, but, but upstaging simply is the idea of drawing attention away from what it should be and putting in shifting the focus on you or on something else. Now, I had a personal example I was going to use, but I've used it before, so I, I, I didn't want to do it, but Abby reminded me, so I have to say it again. There, there is a, a moment in our lives where I upstaged my wife pretty bad, and that was at the birth of our second child, um, where she was in labor, and I woke up from the nap when they came in and said, it's time to push, and I passed out. Um, and, and the doctor had to help me instead of my wife who was in labor. But uh, to, to bear the, the, uh, the embarrassment of, of going down that, I, d- I thought of a few other examples culturally of where upstaging has happened. I just want to share some of these. Uh, the first was when Kanye West famously upstaged Taylor Swift at the VMAs. Um, if you're too young to remember this, because uh, some of you are young, um, she won an award and uh, Kanye came on stage as she's given her acceptance speech. And he takes the mic and, and basically declares that Beyonce was the winner instead, uh, totally stealing the moment from Taylor Swift. Now, I know a lot of you think I don't like Taylor Swift, and that's true, but I'm giving her props here. Um, You know what? Look, here's the thing. She she deserved to win it. Uh, She's probably the reason why the the Chiefs are going to lose today, but uh, she deserved to win it. All right, let's keep with the the, the theme of football for a moment. Who remembers the halftime show of 2015? Anybody remember that? Okay, there was this character formed called Left Shark. Yes. (laughs) Katy Perry's halftime show, which we remember nothing about it, but there was this character called Left Shark, who was literally the Left Shark in the picture, and and it just went off script, like totally went off script dancing, it became an internet, just a meme throughout the the internet, a sensation, Uh, we're all like Left Shark, we always want to do our own thing. Totally upstates the show. And then perhaps a more just common example is the idea of photobombing which I love photobombing, but I hate being photobombed, okay? And here's an example of one that went viral uh, a few years ago of a proposal um, (laughs) where this guy was on a morning run. And I don't know, look, I run too, but come on, you got to have the awareness that it's early in the morning, no one's around you, and you're running, and all of a sudden to your left you see a photographer, and on your right you see a man down on one knee. you got to think, oh, I should probably stop, right? But this guy obviously waited too late, and um, he stopped and stared at the camera uh, during this moment. The cool thing about this story is that he actually got invited to the wedding. Um, so they, they ended up in inviting him to the wedding. Uh, but Nonetheless, it was a moment of upstaging. Now, I share these kind of uh, silly examples because the reality is, in our lives, we, we, we face this on a day-to-day basis. Because there's something within us, whether we're extroverted or introverted, there's something within us that actually wants to put ourselves in the best light. We constantly want to put ourselves in the spotlight as much as we can. We will upstage any moment that will put us in a favorable light compared to other people or compared to the expectations we set for ourselves. It's just human nature to do so. And we find that in those moments, what was really going down in ourselves is a question of identity. Where do we derive our self-worth from? Where do we derive our self-value from? And in that moment, why do we feel like we need to make the moment about ourselves? Now, here we're introduced to a character named John the Baptist, who was this exceptional leader of his day. He was absolutely amazing. And if there is a man who, who had the, the, the means to upstage a moment and put himself in the best light, it was John the Baptist. The temptation was there. He had every right and every moment in this moment of popularity in his own ministry to put himself in the forefront. He could have done it in several ways. He could have talked about his miraculous birth. He could have talked about how he lived this life as solitary, as self-denial in the wilderness. He could have written a, a built an empire, really, about his survival tactics in the wilderness, like, like Bear Grylls. He could have have talked about his weird diet, about eating grasshoppers, his paleo diet, basically. He could have have sold books about his message of repentance and gone on speaking circuits. He could have done all these things to, to make himself prominent. But when the religious leaders approach him in this moment where thousands are flocking to John, instead of doing that, he gets out of his own way and points them to another. His whole heartbeat, his whole life was this motto of not me, but him. It's not about me. But him. Later in John, he'll say, He increases that I might decrease. That is the motto of John's life. He is so focused on Christ that he took this huge following that he had in the wilderness, all of his Twitter followers who were gathered out there in the middle of nowhere, and he takes them all and he points them to another leader, someone greater than him. That is his life. Now, how does John do this? Well, he's going to tell us, and he's going to say one simple phrase, and it's going to be our man I did today, and that is this Behold, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, Christ. Gaze upon Him. Focus on Him. Fixate your attention on Him. He is greater. John's going to say that time and time again in his heart in this, this passage. I am not special. He is. Behold Him. Glory in Him. Find your worth and identity in Him. That is our message today from John chapter one. And our outline going to flow straight from the text. We're going to look at two things about. John's uh, testimony here, his witness to Jesus. Number one, we're going to see John's self-perception, how he perceives himself in this passage, and how that then influences his focus, that John is focused on Jesus solely. So let's go ahead and dive into the text as we continue in our study of John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. There's a question of identity there he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am a voice of the one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So you have this, this, uh, this kind of trial, almost this interview that is happening here. John, again, this exceptional leader. He's unquestionably a great man. The the Bible speaks of him in this light. He's this immense leader. People are flocking to receive baptism from John in the wilderness, to hear his message of repentance. He's bold. He's confident. He's preaching a, a message of repentance. He's not afraid to even challenge the leaders of the day. We'll see later that he challenges King Herod himself about his sin. He's confrontational. He's bold. And yet he has this humility about him to point everyone to someone else to point everyone to someone else greater, another leader. And, and the Jewish leaders of the day were bothered by what was happening in the wilderness uh, because of John. They knew there were stirrings of, well, maybe the Messiah is coming. And they, they had this idea that the Messiah was going to be this, this Jewish figure who would rally the Jewish people together to overcome and overthrow Rome. And so they're wondering what's going on in the wilderness. They also knew the, the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 at the end of the Old Testament that says that before, as the Messiah comes, there will be a forerunner this Elijah figure who will come and make way for the Messiah. Maybe they're thinking, well, maybe that's who he is. Maybe he's this Elijah prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. Who is this guy? What is he doing? We have to get answers. And so they send this group of kind of reporters to go out and figure out what is John doing. And the religious pundits of the day they come out and they quiz John the Baptist and they start this interview. They say, who are you, John? And he immediately confesses, I'm not the Christ. They say, okay, well, well, then are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. They say, well, you're the prophet. They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, which talks about this prophet that would come to help Israel, this prophet unto Moses, and, and, and he says, "No, I'm not the prophet. You can feel their frustration this moment. This is a pretty weak interview. He's not giving us anything. He's just denying stuff. They're getting together, and as they're frustrated by his answers, they realize that there's something sensational happening. There's hundreds, of, perhaps thousands of people who are flocking to hear him and to be baptized, and they can't get anything out of him. Finally, they come to John and they say, in verse 22, "Look. We've asked you all the obvious questions. You got to give us something here, right? We got all this great footage of what's happening out here. We got to have something to give back to them in Jerusalem. We got to say, Who are you? In your view, John, who are you? And listen to what he says in verse 23 I am a voice. John's answer is, I am a voice. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way. Lord, what am I? I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice that is making sure that there is a proper road getting ready for the King is coming. And he quotes the Bible here from Isaiah chapter 41, verse three. And to do so, he's proclaiming that what he is doing is what every prophet of the old Testament was doing, pointing people to God's son, the redeemer. In the old Testament, the prophets pointed to Jesus from a distance, but John is going to say in his testimony, I have seen Jesus. And he's going to point directly to him. And then he continues verse 25. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing, right? If you're neither the Christ, if you're not Elijah or the prophet, then why are you out here baptizing? And John answers, indeed, I am baptizing with water. And now uh, again, this is really interesting. They're, they're, they're really interested why he's doing this act of baptism, now, what John is doing in his baptism, just as a side note, is not what we do baptism here at King's Church, okay? This is different baptism. The baptism we experience here at King's Church is one that we, we, we identify with the burial, death, and resurrection of Christ. We're immersed in Christ's death, and we're resurrected with new life in Christ. It's through our faith in him that we experience that. But what John's doing, his baptism, is through preparing the way for people to receive Christ. It's a baptism of preparation, for them to recognize their sin and their need for salvation. And so he's out there baptizing with water. And baptiz- baptism was not completely uncommon in that day, but mainly if, if bat- in Judaism, but if baptism was used in Judaism, it was typically a, a ritual of cleansing. It was typically used for Gentiles who wanted to convert into Judaism. They were called God-fears. And if they wanted to convert into Judaism, they just couldn't become Jewish, even by circumcision. They had to be cleansed of their, their uncleanliness as Gentiles. And so they would go through this ritual of baptism to cleanse themselves from their impurities. But notice what John is doing. He is not just baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing everyone. In, in essence, what John is showing us here, and you can read more about it in Mark chapter 1, what he's showing us is that everyone is in need. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. All of us are unclean. All of us are need salvation in the Messiah. And his salvation is going to be by grace alone. What he's doing is he's challenging the religious order of the day. He says it doesn't matter how pure you are. It doesn't matter how religious you might think you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your, your morality. None of it matters. No amount of that could possibly save you. We're all equal. We're all in the same boat. No matter what our record may say, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. We're all in need of Someone to save us. We're all equally lost, and therefore we all equally have an opportunity to be saved through repentance. That's John's message here. But he continues with his testimony here, and he, he also talks about his unworthiness compared to Jesus. He gets even a little deeper. He says in verse twenty six, Yeah, I'm baptizing with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, in every culture, there are some things that are so demeaning, so offensive that you don't want to do. In this culture, the thing that was so offensive, so demeaning was untying someone else's sandals because it was kind of nasty, right? I mean, think about it. It's a hot, dusty culture. People walk all day. They get home. Last thing you want to do is touch someone's smelly, dirty, foul sandals and take them off their feet. In fact, no one could do this unless you were literally the lowest of lowest of lowest of servants. There there were rules in place that if you had any social status whatsoever, you could not touch someone else's sandals. It was such a demeaning thing. But notice what John does here. He used this expression to get a point across. You know, it would be common if he was in the presence of someone great, if perhaps if if John went to the, in the presence of, uh, of king, of a king, maybe, maybe he went into the presence of Caesar. It'd be common for him to say, I'm only worthy, O King, to untie your sandals. In other words, it'd be common for him to say, the only thing I can do in the presence of greatness is untie your sandals, the most lowly task possible. But that's not what he says about Jesus. He doesn't just say, the only task I can do in the presence of the greatness of Jesus is untie his sandals. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. In other words, what he is proclaiming here is that Jesus is not like anyone else on earth. There is, there is no comparison to him to any other greatness on this planet. No great king, Caesar himself, nothing holds a candlestick to the greatness and power of Jesus. And therefore, I am so unworthy, I'm not even the same playing field as him, I'm so unworthy that I cannot even touch the straps of his sandals. You see, John has this incredibly low view of himself in the midst of an incredibly high view of Jesus. And the first thing we kind of see from this is that it seems like John doesn't really understand his own greatness. I mean, this is a dude who does some amazing stuff, and he just seems to, every time something's brought up, he seems to go lower and lower about himself. And what's interesting is Jesus seems to have a different perspective about John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, listen to the words of Jesus, what he says about John. He says in verse 9, why did you guys go out to see John? He says, truly I say this, verse 11 of Matthew 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Now that's a pretty good comment, right? He says, among everyone who's been born in the world, that's a lot of people, among everyone who's been born in the world up to that point in history, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And then later he says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is actually the forerunner. I mean, think about that real quick. John's over here saying that I'm nothing. I'm so unworthy. I can't even untie this man's sandals. And, and Jesus is over here saying he's the greatest person to ever be born at this point in history. <laughs> right? Who's right? <laughs> uh, Jesus is right, obviously. Um, you know. John was a, a, an incredible person. And yet his view of himself was, was so radically different. And you may think, well, why is that? Why is that? Why did, did John just have a, a, a really low self-esteem? Like, did he just not realize how talented he was? or how good he was, or how great he was? You know, when you really think about it, there's there's two reasons why someone won't understand their greatness if they are great, if they're doing something great. There's typically two reasons. One, they're so self-absorbed that they're looking at every single detail of their lives and everything that's wrong with them, and they can't see the whole picture of what they're actually accomplishing. The other is that they don't look at themselves at all. That's John. John does not look at himself at all. Which begs us to ask the same question that was asked of John the Baptist today. Who are we? who do we think we are? When we look, who are we? Where do we get our self-image, our self-understanding, our self-worth? Where does that come from? Where does that derive from for us? Are we looking at ourselves? And, and if we take God out of the, the situation for a moment, there's really only two ways that we can look. We're either going to look at what other people think about us, and we derive our value from that, or we're going to look at what we think about us. And we can do this in multiple ways in different cultures. In our kind of modern culture, we typically can, can come up with what well, who are we? Who are we going to be? You know, we have freedom to choose that. In other cultures, perhaps that's preset for you. Maybe the traditions of the day or what your parents say is who you're going to be. Regardless, your identity becomes a performance-based identity because it's in how am I living up to the standards either I've set for myself or someone else has set for me. And constantly you're going to be asking that question, what do people think about me? What am I thinking about myself? Am I living up to my own standards? And when you do live up to those moments and those standards, guess what you feel? You feel very confident, but you're not very humble about it. Because in that moment, you realize that I'm good. But when you fail to live up to your own standards or the standards set by someone else, what other people think about you or what you think about yourself, guess what? You feel broken, don't you? You may feel humble, but you don't feel confident at all. But here's John the Baptist, and he is one of immense boldness and confidence and humility at the very same time. How can he have such an identity? How can he be humble and confident at the very same time? Well, the reality is John is not looking at himself at all. He's looking at another. He has no ego at all. He doesn't have a superiority complex where he's thinking about his own goodness and how he's living up to his own standards. And he doesn't have an inferiority complex where he's realizing he's failing. He's not struggling with either one of those because he's looking at someone else. What's amazing is John has little comprehension of the gospel at this point in his life. He doesn't know about the cross yet. He doesn't understand resurrection yet. And yet John understands this simple task that in myself, I am nothing, but in him, I'm everything. He understands that. He gets it. Now, How do we get it? How do we understand that level of identity? Well, there's a little bit of prophecy here in verse 27, where he talks about that he, these straps of Jesus, his sandals, I'm unworthy to untie. And the reason why I say it's a little bit of a prophecy, because there's another time where Jesus actually does untie people's sandals. That's in John 13. Later in the the gospel of John, we're going to read about this as we make our way through. But in the last moments where he's with his disciples before he dies, he gets down on his knees. He shocks his disciples he gets down on his knees. The man who, who, who no one is worthy to untie his sandals gets down on his knees and he begins to not only untie the sandals of his disciples, but wash their feet. And they're shocked. They're appalled that he would do something so low, so demeaning. And yet Jesus is showing he's giving them a symbol of what he's about to do. And that he is the one who has come in humility. He is the one who's emptied himself of his glory. He is the one who, there's no beauty about him that we should desire him. He is very much unbelievably ordinary. And yet he goes to the cross and he performs for us. That we don't have to perform for ourselves anymore. He goes to the cross and he lived a perfect life leading up to that, that we could not live for us. And then he goes to the cross and he earns the blessing of eternal life for us. And he died the death that we so deserve. So that when we believe in God, we are believing in Jesus Christ based off of his performance, not ours. Based off of his righteousness, his standards, not ours. Which means that your relationship with God and my relationship with God is one that is based on an unconditional love. That God loves you today. He loves you in the moments that you're high and you think you're living up to the standards of other people. And he loves you in the moments that you're low. Because it's not based on you. It's based on him. Which means that we can be incredibly humble in life, and we should be humbled by that fact because we can't earn that type of love. But it also should give us an immense confidence in life to walk through life knowing that we can't lose it either. That's the unconditional love of God in Christ. And what that leads us to be is just like John, a voice, a witness. See, like John the Baptist, we can be humble enough not to feel superior to anybody, but we can be bold enough not to care what other people think. And you know, the test of if you have that type of identity, it's actually the question, are you a witness to Christ? Do you talk about Jesus to other people? That's the more plain way of saying it. Or when you, when you get in those moments, do you get fearful of what they will think about you? Because if you do, then, then you're not being very bold, are you? And if you actually believe what other people think about you when you're sharing your faith, then, then guess what? Their thoughts and their, their, what they think about you, their standards for you, that's actually contributing more to your identity than you realize. Or if you share about Christ, are you abrasive? Are you put people off when you do it? Do you lack humility when you do it? Do you, do you deep down think that you're actually better than them? You're superior to them? John was able to be a witness to Christ because he never imposed himself in the picture of the one whom he was witnessing. took himself out. He was humble enough to remove himself from the picture of the one who he was witnessing to, but he was bold enough to point others to it. Going back to our illustration of photobombing, as if John is saying here in this moment, he's teaching us that we should never photobomb. We should never get in the picture. It's all about Christ. We should be humble enough to not put ourselves, to insert ourselves in the picture of the one that we're witnessing to or for, but we should be humble enough and confident enough to point other people to it. That we too Can be a voice just like John the Baptist. We too can be a voice that is reminded that when we talk about Jesus Christ, it is not about us, it is the power of God coming through us into people's lives. Which means that we don't have to be a great person to share faith, which means we don't have to be in the spotlight to be a witness, which means we don't have to feel eloquent to be a voice. The question we have to ask ourselves, do we have the boldness and the humility to talk to others about Jesus? Are we able to say to our own soul this morning, not me, but him? Briefly, as we look forward, he focuses on Jesus. I just want to touch on this point real quick. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said this, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this person, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So there's the purpose. He came baptizing so that Jesus might be revealed. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen him bore witness that this is the son of God. John beholds, he gazes, he fixates himself on Jesus, and he says, this is the one I told you about, the one who comes before me. Even though, even though we know that John was born before Jesus, he says, no, Jesus was before me. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, his eternal pre-existence. He says, this is the one who has come before me. This is the one that I've been preparing for. I didn't know it at the moment, but my baptism with water was to reveal him to Israel because he's coming, he's offering a new baptism and I've witnessed at his baptism, the spirit descending upon him and in that moment, what's happening is, is not, John's not saying at that moment, Jesus is fully God. Now he's already told us that Jesus was the word of the word was with God in the beginning, that Jesus always had the Holy Spirit. But in this moment, as the spirit's descending and John's witnessing this, what's happening is God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, they are revealing the plan of redemption to John the Baptist, and he is witnessing it. They're rejoicing that John sees it, that the Word has been made flesh and he has made his dwelling among us. In that moment, Jesus is also going to demonstrate for us what our lives should be one that is of complete dependence upon the power of the Spirit. And he comes and he says, No, there's a different baptism now. Jesus has the power. John the Baptist did not have the power to change lives, Jesus does. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is when we immerse ourselves in Christ. He has the power to change us from life to death. He has the power to bring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we're baptized into him. When we believe in him, we're engulfed. We're plunged into Christ. His presence engulfs us. It becomes all about him through the power of the spirit. And John says, I get it now. I get it. Behold him. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do you think is going through John's mind when he finally, it finally clicks in that moment that he is the Lamb of God? You think he's re- recording all the way back through his history. He, he remembers the Passover. He remembers in Egypt that, that last final plague where the angel of death comes and he is going to, to slay the firstborn of, of every house in Egypt. But, but God tells Israel that though you've sinned, if you take a lamb and you spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, then I'm going to spare you you will not have to pay for your sins. And every year after that, they commemorate that Passover and they, they take a lamb and they sacrifice the lamb. And they're reminded that Israel did not have to pay for their sins. Atonement. And say that John's remembering that in this moment. And then he's also remembering this mysterious figure in the Old Testament that is talked about. This prophet in Deuteronomy 18, who's going to come. This, this, this suffering servant, Isaiah says, this great messianic king that Isaiah even says is one who will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And you can imagine at this moment, it's like the Holy Spirit is bringing this revelation to John's mind. All these things are coming together. And he's realizing, I get it. Behold, it is the lamb of God. It is not these other little lambs that have t- took away the sins of the world. It is the lamb of God. The reason why the firstborns were spared in, in Egypt was because God gave up his firstborn for us. And it begins to click. Behold, this is the lamb of God. This is the king who comes in bold humility for us. This is the one who will take away the sins of the world. He gets it. And suddenly, it's like, John, the light bulb goes off in his head. This is the one that we fixate on. This is the one that we gaze on today. So how do we get it? Just like him, we have to behold Christ. The life of the believer is one of beholding Christ, meaning that we grasp The greatness of who he is and what he has done. It means that we rest in the truth of what he has done. It means we trust in the fact that we daily need a Savior. And that is a sobering fact. But the Bible is clear that God knows every action, every thought, every word, every deed that we have done that has slapped him in the face. The Bible is clear that God knows every time that we've rebelled against his authority in this world. And Hebrews reminds us that nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. He knows exactly what we've been saying, thinking, and doing in the last two minutes, last two hours, last two days, last two months, last two decades. He knows it all. And deep down inside, we know he knows it. That's why when we sin, we feel guilty, don't we? And that guilt is not just a feeling. It's because God has implanted a moral awareness in us, our conscience. It's a fact. It's a warning sign within our souls that we know God exists. Whether we want to suppress it or not, we know he exists. We know we're made for him. We know that he gives us good things and we know that we're accountable to him. And we know that truth, but yet daily we have to come face to face with the reality that we break his laws. We use him. We ignore him. We insist on doing our own way. We feel guilty because we are guilty, but behold the lamb of God, he has provided redemption. He's provided a solution for those moments that we can be redeemed by the grace of God, that we can look to Christ today, who paid it all for us on the cross. He did it for me and he does it for you. All we need to do is confess that we need rescue and trust in what he has done for us and our hearts can be healed and be overcome with thanksgiving for the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So as we come to our time of communion this morning, let's focus, let's fixate on that truth this morning. Let's behold him. See, Spurgeon is a famous preacher. He tells a story of how he's Uh, in this new auditorium he was speaking in, he was practicing the acoustics because this is before they had amplification of mics. And as he's doing it, he recites this passage in the room and he gets to that triumphant moment where he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that moment, there's a janitor who is walking by and the janitor looks at him, goes up and talks to him and is converted on the spot because he beheld the lamb of God. That is what it looks like for the Christian Instead of beholding ourselves, our problems, what other people think about us, today we are to behold the Lamb of God, to look at him in ourselves. And when we look at him, we find fullness of life in him. So let's behold him today, because what we behold, we become. And he is molding us, church, is shaping us that we might become more and more like him. So may the heartbeat of our church be not me, but him.